uh, Jimmy mentioned a little bit about. It's Wednesday night. We're going to have this guest speaker. You might be interested in hearing from him. He's a scientist. His name is Dr. Robert Carter, and he speaks with great credibility and insight on some of the matters we've been discussing as we go through Genesis. Uh, I, I can't approach it from a scientific point of view because I'm just, I don't know that stuff. I just look at the text. So, so we're grateful for men like this. He has a PhD in marine biology. He's a thoroughgoing Christian. He believes in the biblical account of creation and he thinks there's scientific verification for uh, that perspective. He doesn't believe it's just a blind leap from logic to faith to believe in the literal Genesis account and some of the things we'll discuss even today. Anyway, if you're interested in uh, knowing more about creation and how to defend uh, that perspective as you're out and about in the marketplace, that'll be this Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. We're going to modify the normal format a little bit to give him a little more time than is normally available. And then after the service, uh, he will be in room 1102. I think that's the room number, 1102. Uh, for a question and answer time and no holds barred. So you can, if you have time after the service, you can come on by and ask Dr. Carter whatever you'd like to uh, ask. And surely uh, friends and uh, guests of yours are, are more than welcome on this particular night. We're bringing him in. I forgot what state. I can't remember if it's Colorado or, I don't know, one of these foreign states. Anyway, he'll be here this Wednesday night. We've had him before, actually. In this class and, and our uh, other two classes, and he was well received, and so we thought it would be a good time, opportunity for us to bring him back to have a little larger venue. We kind of tested him out uh, last time, and uh, people gave a positive response, so we're going to bring him back this Wednesday uh, night, in case you're interested. Well, all right, we are in Genesis uh, chapter 7 uh, today, Genesis 7, the book of beginnings and first things, and you'll see a few more first things uh, mentioned in Genesis chapter 7. Give you a chance to get there. And then tell me what the first word in the first verse is in your translation. Then, there it is. So that really obligates us to think about what preceded. Something happened, and now we get a sort of a time indicator. Then, after what happened, happened. Then... And what it is that happened is the building of the ark. After Noah built the ark, it took him about 120 years. After he built it, then, now that the ark has been constructed by faith, you know, God told Noah to do this. What an odd thing to tell somebody. Uh, but he got credit for simply taking God at his word. And even though I'm sure he was filled with questions, he just did what God told him to do. After that, uh, the construction of the ark. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark. I don't know which took more faith, to build it or to get in it. Remember, it's a box. It's a floating box. It, did not ha- it, it didn't have a means of forward movement. You couldn't put it in reverse. It was not a cruise line. It wasn't a ship. It was a box. It was like a shoebox, a big shoebox that was designed not to move but to float. And God tells this man who'd never been in anything like this, now get in it. And, boy, that would have taken maybe more faith even than to build it. Uh, And so the Lord said, Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I've seen to be righteous before me in this time. In Noah's day, his position was the minority position. 
he decided to obey God. That was a minority position in his day. Aren't you glad things are different today? Uh, it's the same, isn't it? Uh, to obey God, to um, bow before him, to consider him as we uh, live out our lives, that's a minority position today. So if you're feeling the crunch, for good reason, you are statistically in, in the minority. The majority historically has ruled, uh, but it's just as true that historically the majority has oftentimes not been right. With respect to the creator, the majority is not right. As in Noah's day, so too today, most give no thought to the creator what, whatsoever. Noah uh, was distinguished in so doing. And so God said, you alone I've seen to be righteous. He was in right standing with God because he sort of took God at his word. God said, do this because something's coming, a flood. Well, Noah had never seen anything like this. He was landlocked, for crying out loud. And by faith, Noah did what God required him to do. And on that basis, by his faith in God's word, it was reckoned to him as righteous. Nothing has ever changed. That's what God is looking for. He wants to be believed. Uh, he would like for us to be better people than we are, but he knows we can't in our own strength. He would like for us to be holy in and of ourselves, but he knows we can't. In fact, he knows we have a sin nature. But that's not the impediment. That's not what keeps us from a relationship with God. It's just not trusting him. Now, that's what God wants. He simply wants to be believed. And so Noah believed him, and he was considered righteous in his day on that on that basis. So it says in verse 2, You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. See where it says uh, by sevens? I don't know exactly what that means. There's difference of opinion. Some say it simply means seven pairs. Others say no, it means uh, three pairs and one left over to be offered as a thanksgiving offering at the end of the flood. I just don't know the answer. I think it's interesting to think about. I don't lose a lot of sleep over this at night. I just want you to know there's different perspectives. And then there's this one. It mentions two kinds of animals here, categories, clean and unclean. What in the world does that mean? This is centuries before the law of Moses. I know the law of Moses distinguished or defined some animals as being clean, meaning suitable to offer to God and to eat. But other animals were designated as being unclean, meaning you couldn't, it wasn't a worthy animal to offer to God and you shouldn't eat it. So you have all these dietary laws in the book of Leviticus. And so man, it's like eons beyond Genesis right now. So, so my question is, and I don't have a good answer, how did they distinguish between clean and unclean? What did that mean to them? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, sir. That is an excellent perspective. I was kind of thinking that, but you, you maybe confirmed it a little bit. And, and uh, our brother is saying, early on they made an offering. Maybe God somehow communicated to them what's acceptable, clean, and what's not. Moses regulated it and, you know, codified it, wrote it down. But maybe they heard in another fashion from God early on. So that's a good, a, a good observation. Yes, sir.
Yes. So there might have been something with the with Cain and Abel's offering that gave him insight. One was accepted and one was not. That's another good thought. Very good thought. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, that's similar to what our brother said. And you could really be right about that. I think you probably are. Somehow it was general general knowledge. Somehow they knew there was a difference. And so they loaded up more clean than unclean animals, it appears here. And then it says in verse 3, uh, not just animals, but also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, folks, a 120 Years has passed, and a patient God still gives seven more days. Noah was just not doing carpentry work for 120 years. He was building something no one had ever seen before. Neighbors would come by and say, what in the world are you doing? He would have a chance to tell them. And so the New Testament refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Think about that. Not a preacher in the sense we think about it today. He simply would tell people how to be right with God. He would say, I'm building this box because there's going to be a judgment of God on human sin. He would tell them, we have plenty of it. Remember Genesis 6 that y'all covered last week? There's some terrible, degrading things that happened there to justify God's judgment. Noah would say, there is a God. He is holy. We have to stand before him. His judgment is on the way. You can be spared the ravages of what's going to come if you get right with God, and that's what I'm doing right here. God said if we build this and get in on this thing right here, we'll be in a place of safety. and He's preaching to him for 120 years, and uh, there's not a whole lot of response, and now God gives another Another seven days uh, in which he says, after that, I'll send rain on the earth 40 days, 40 nights. I'm going to blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I've made. That's a sad statement. I think God was sad. I'm going to blot out every living thing that I made. God personally intervened, was involved, supervised, um, gave oversight to creation, brought into being all that has the breath of life. And now God's at a point where he says, I'm going to blot it out. I think it's a note of sadness, but also of justification. I mean, if he gave life to all of these critters, he has every right to snuff it out. You may not like it. You may not like it. Too bad. God is God. So you have this mixed review. So anyway, you have these seven days. And uh, how did the people respond? Well, not very well. So uh, as a commentary on the Old Testament, let's look at a passage in the New Testament. Yes, sir. This is an excellent point that Jim brings up. Uh, uh, He was saying there's some thought that it never rained until now. That is correct. Some say, and this is where the science part of it really goes way over my head, Jim, but uh, what you said uh, I heard somewhere, uh, and they say the earth was covered by like a vapor canopy. And so uh, that's exactly right. That's why they listen. I mean, it cut in the sun's rays, didn't get to them and age us and turn our hair this color and all that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so uh, the source of irrigation or moisture was not needed uh, from the rains at that point. And they say this is the first time. These, during the, well, that's an excellent point of view. Well, I'd like you to look with me to Luke chapter 17, 
just for a second, Luke chapter 17. And I'd like to show you something. Luke 17, that's in the New Testament. It's before the book of Revelation, and that's the only direction I can give you. You're on your own after that. (laughs) Luke 17, look what it says, verse 27. They were eating. Is eating a bad thing? No, we're going to do it after a while. They were drinking. Is that a bad thing? No. They were marrying. Is that a bad thing? Well, it depends on who you ask. Generally, it's not a bad thing. How about this? They were being given in marriage. Is that a bad thing? No. They were doing all these non-bad things. These are normal activities of daily life. They're not immoral, evil. They were doing all these things until the day that Noah entered the ark. Luke is writing here as if what we're reading about in Genesis 7 actually took place. Luke is treating the Genesis account as if it's historical fact, not mythological, not fantasy. It's not creative writing. Luke is about ready to make an application from something he is implying really was true. The Genesis account is under fire. Is the reason why I'm developing this point. I think it's literally true. And a guy like Luke, who's a lot smarter than I am, apparently he's a historian. Luke was a historian, and and uh, you know apparently he's giving historical credibility to the account uh, in Genesis seven that we're reading about. Anyway, they were doing all these things until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. They were engaged in activities of daily living in Noah's day. They were not necessarily blatantly evil activities by no means. They're just the activities of daily life. And at this time, Noah entered there, and then the flood came and took everyone by surprise, destroyed them all. Now back up to Luke 17, verse 26. This is a bad way to do it, but verse 26, I should have read that before. It says, "And and just as it happened in the days of Noah so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Folks, that's a reference to the second coming of the Lord. When is he coming? I don't know the date, but we ought to be attuned to the day in which we live, looking for the signs, not reading things into the day, but just concluding from the day, where are we? Folks, our day is amazingly parallel to Noah's day. A lot of degradation, a lot of corruption, a lot of immorality, a lot of crazy stuff going on as in Noah's day, coupled with the fact a lot of people seem to be just busied with the activities of daily living, not sinful activities, just the stuff of life, getting a job, working a job, paying rent or a mortgage, going to sleep, getting up to do it the next day, possibly marrying, possibly having children, I don't know, you know, just just stuff. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people even today are so caught up in the present, there's no thought for the future. And so this notion of accountability to God one day, this notion of a God before whom we have to stand and give account, leave me alone, I'm, I'm living for the day. I, you know, I'm getting all the gusto today. Just as in, just as in Noah's day. So, so Luke tells us if you're looking for an indicator, uh, one of the indicators of the return of the Lord, it's going to be just like in Noah's day. 
where people are just about their business and all of a sudden, just as the floodwaters came in that day, so too the ultimate judgment of God upon human sin will come very, very quickly. So anyway, that's sort of what it, what it says there. Back And now back in Genesis 7 verse 5, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah did it. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. You see where it says he was 600 years old? You're going to see, in addition to that, many other chronological indicators in this chapter. That is contrary to, to mythology. Um, I think God is helping us to see in giving us these time indicators. It took place in a day, at a time, in the calendar year. This is not something that's just fancifully made up. This is not a story written by a novelist. This is a historical narrative inspired by Almighty God. This took place. In this case, Noah was 600 years old. Here comes the flood. Then verse 7, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, they entered the ark because of the water of the flood. And then of clean animals, animals that are not clean, birds, everything that creeps on the ground. They went into the ark by Noah, uh, to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Have you ever seen animals behave that way? Nor I. That had to be a God thing. How do you get animals to line up neatly, you know what I mean? Hey, stop pushing. It's not your turn yet, you know. Squirrels, you go last. Rabbits first. I mean... That was a, that was a, God is, I think, superintending all this. Now, verse 10, it came about after the seven days. The water of the flood came upon the earth. It was in the 600th year of Noah's life. Look at how specific. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. The water came from two sources, from below, subterranean, explosion of water and from above rains the likes of which earth dwellers had not seen at that particular time you know it's as if god is uh it's like he's uncreating what he created you know, when he created i think it was on the second day he separated the waters from the waters and made dry land made a division in the waters and had animals on dry land and people on dry land. And now it's as if he's saying, you have no idea of the expansive effects of your sin. Even creation is affected. And now it's as if God is allowing to be reversed um, what he had done to accommodate humankind. Uh, Folks, sin really permeates every aspect of life. So this notion of don't tell me what to do you know, I'm a, if I, two consenting adults in the privacy of their bedroom, whatever the deal is, you know, back off, leave me alone. I think those are people who just minimize the pervasive effects of sin. Everything's affected, even the environment. Folks, the cataclysmic potential of, of elements in creation order is being, are being restrained by an almighty God. But the minute he lifts his hand, and so that's kind of what's happening over here. Now the waters which were separate, they're just coming together and they're going to just swallow up everybody. So verse 12, the rain fell upon the earth 40 days, 40 nights. 
And on the very same day, now we get the names of people who were in the ark. On the very same day, you have Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth. They were the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them. They entered the ark. So how many people entered the ark? Eight people. That's not a lot, is it? How many people inhabited the earth at this time? Anybody know? I don't either. What do you think? What'd you say, Bob? Listen to me. That's what a guy in the last class said. How do you know that? Oh, Chuck said that? Oh, so it's subject to question. You didn't mean Chuck Swindoll, did you? Oh, the other Chuck. He also tells us he catches a lot of fish. <laughs> a little loose with numbers. No, actually, uh, I've heard that, that because of the, their longevity, the length of their life, I mean, they lived hundreds and hundreds of years. People say, yeah, the population was about 7 billion then. What's the world population today? It's about 7 billion, isn't it? Just an interesting sort of a parallel. But even if it's like 2 billion, let's say, what if it was a million Eight people out of a million make the ark? We are talking the vast minority. Do you ever feel like you're in the minority because you're a Christian? Well, you ought to be because you're in the statistical minority. You ever wonder why your value system is challenged? Because the majority rules. It may not be right, but the majority rules. It just isn't Noah's day, so today. Yes, sir. What a great observation. And our brother's saying back in, in verse 1, it says, God found Noah to be righteous, but his family members, the other seven, they gained entrance into the ark. So was Noah's righteousness, this is the question, imputed to their account? What do you all think? Okay. For the time being? That's an, that's a, that's a great answer, Val. Yes, for the time being, they benefited from their leaders' right standing with God. Did that mean ultimate salvation? Not necessarily. They had to establish their own righteousness with God. I think that's what Val was. What, what do you all think? That's a great observation. I skipped it on purpose because I don't know the answer. So that's, that's how we do things. But thanks a lot for pointing that out. What do you, what do you think, Karen? I don't know. That's a great observation. Because surely you would rather have the grandkids than the kids. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so I don't get that. I don't know. That's a great thought. What do you think, brother? Yeah, yeah. Would stand to reason. Yes, exactly, exactly. It, it would, our brother's saying, if Noah was righteous, wouldn't it stand to reason that his family perhaps followed suit in that day? I think he's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. But apparently they made the cut, so, so maybe they were all right. Jimmy? Oh, oh. Yes, ma'am. Did, was there somebody? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's good. 
Yeah. We're actually going to see that in a second, and that's a great observation. What do you think about that one? It would have taken a measure of faith on their part just to get on the ark, and that's what pleases God when people trust him. Did you like that one? You don't like that one? Well, okay, it's okay. It was not my idea. That lady said right there. Yeah, she said, no, I'm with you. I don't like that one either. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, these are wonderful questions. Katya, do you? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Katya, that's a great well, that's a great observation. Man yes, Bear. <laughs> yes. He needed some more to get. That is true. Very true. The timing was good. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what our brother was saying. His influence over that time uh, more than likely had effect on them, so they, they stood on their own righteous grounds before you. Well, that's great. You guys dig it. I'm going to be really smart in the next hour. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I do not. Um, the Hebrew calendar is, is somewhat different than, than our calendar, but not that different. So generally, I think we can think in terms of that, that standard um, calendaring. It basically was the Hebrew calendar was about the same, roughly the same. Boy, these are great observations, folks. My goodness. So anyway, uh, all this is happening. And then in verse um, 12, the rain fell upon the earth 40 days. Oh, no, we named, we got to verse 13. Eight people in the ark. Verse 14, they and every beast after its kind, all the cattle, Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, two by twos, or by twos, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh. They entered as God had commanded him. The Lord closed it behind him. And that's one of my favorite phrases. And the Lord closed it behind him. I just think about that. The special and specific attention. By Almighty God. Noah's in the ark. It's a place of safety and deliverance. Salvation, if you will. Maybe he wanted to get out at times. He's in that ark for a long time. It's a box. Maybe he wanted to get out. He couldn't get out. God closed the door. Noah had no capacity to open it. To me, this is another indicator of the assurance of our salvation, the eternal security. I didn't bring it about. I I can't bring it to an end. God has closed the door on that matter of where we stand with him once we accept the Lord Jesus. Not only could Noah not open it so as to get out, (laughs) he couldn't open it to let anyone else in. I suppose he maybe would have wanted to. Maybe he thought, oh, what happened to my neighbor? 
my neighbor was really nice to me, you know. I, what's going on with my neighbor out there? He, that's it. When God, when it was time for God to close the door, that's it. There are no other, there are no other options. There is a place and a timing for deliverance and for salvation. Uh, it's open. It's an option available for people until the time. It was 120 years plus one week. And uh, if people didn't respond, it was just, I mean, God closed. I mean, the timing might not have met with Noah's approval. Too bad. This is God's doing. I think that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't play with that. Don't toy with that. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. There's going to come a time when God closes the door of the ark. Jesus is the ark, you know. And then it's, it's just too late. There's no more additions and no more deletions at that particular time. So God closed it behind in verse 17. The flood came upon the earth for 40 days. Water increased, lifted the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the waters. Isn't it interesting? The same thing, substance, the H2, the water, the same thing had two terribly different effects on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For the righteous, it was the means of their uh, salvation. It lifted them. Above the floodwaters. Uh, for the unrighteous, it drowned them. So too is the gospel. It's the same message. Have you ever shared it with two people, gotten two different responses? Uh, for some, upon hearing the gospel, their hearts are softened. And for others, upon hearing the exact same message, their hearts are hardened. What's the, I, don't, I wish I knew the formula. I wish I could know. Why does the same message have different effects on people? I just don't, I don't understand that. But it does. And uh, so, so too here in Noah's day. Verse 19, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Folks, that verse and other considerations persuade me the flood was not localized. Uh, in a few minutes, you'll hear from someone who has a much better appreciation for this than I do. But at least this passage tells me I can't fathom this being localized. Folks, the water prevailed, and all the high mountains everywhere were covered by it, all and everywhere. Those two different words in English are the same word in Hebrew, kol, K-O-L, all. All the high mountains in all the places <laughs> were covered. I don't understand how that could be accomplished uh, and it be a localized flood, as some suggest. No, I think it was a universal. I think it was global. In its impact, Mount Ararat, where uh, you know we'll read about in chapter eight, that's where the the uh, the Ark of the Covenant alighted on Ararat, is about sixteen thousand nine hundred feet high. Today, anyway, that's about three miles high. That's like a lot of water. How in the world can that volume of water be bounded to a particular area? Now, it was universal. Now, some say, yeah, but Ararat probably wasn't that high in those days. You know, there's all kinds of topographical changes. We're going to hear a little bit about that in just a few minutes. You know, the subterranean explosion of waters and water from on high. Things are changing. I got that. So maybe the mountains weren't that high. But still, every indicator here, as you just read, the, give the plain sense to the meaning of the words, suggests to me it was, it was, a, it was universal. It was global. So then you get verse 20, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher. It's over 20 feet, 20 feet higher than the tallest mountain. The mountains were, were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds, cattle, beasts, 
every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. You ever think that's not fair? I mean, mankind sinned. Why do all these animals have to suffer? Do you like animals? I do. Dogs. I love dogs. You should have seen my babies today when I left to come to church. They were so sad. I wanted to bring them, but you get in trouble for that stuff. They're cutie. Cutie Sadie and Millie. That's their names. They just look. They have brown eyes. They just look. They say, Daddy, I'm telling you, I can hear them. (laughs) Daddy, we would never leave you. Where are you going? We long for your quick return. I'm telling you, they say, I don't know what your dogs say. My dogs say this. So I just kind of went, why did all the animals... The question implies we underestimate the pervasive effects of sin. You know, people claiming their freedom to sin. We're not free. Man, we're connected. We are connected. I mean, the environment's affected, corrupted by sin. The environment is corrupted by sin. Everything is affected by human sin. And so even the animal kingdom here has to suffer because of human sin. Verse 22, of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath uh, of the spirit of life died. Now I take it that implies sea creatures lived. Did I get that wrong? And because it says here all everything on dry land died. So did fish live? I don't I think they the last class thought that they did. Do you think so? I was kind of thinking that too cuz but I don't know for sure. I don't know all this. What do you say? That's true, too. They didn't have an aquarium on the ark. They, you know, that, all right, that settles it. All right, in the next hour, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state that with much more conviction. Yeah, there you go. Well, verse 23, Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to uh, animals to creeping things, birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, together with those uh, that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. God judges sin, doesn't he? People object to that. A loving God won't judge. A holy God judges sin. This is a universal flood. Its whole purpose, what, what prompted it was human sin. This is God revealing to us, I'm not to be trifled with. I don't want you to fear me in the wrong way. I've come near to you. I am Emmanuel. I have a way whereby my justifiable wrath and indignation will not befall you. It will befall my son instead of you. But apart from that, you better fear my wrath. I'm a holy God. You have offended me. Good night. You can't hardly walk away from little offenses you experience. I think God is saying, look how you have offended me. I must be true to myself. I will judge sin. And just to give you evidence of it, here's the flood. But it's nothing in comparison to what will come. God will judge human sin. Now, when is that going to happen? I'm interested in knowing the timing of it all. When is all this going to happen? Well, maybe we can find out a little something. Uh, take a look with me at Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3. And I'm just going to look at it briefly, and then uh, our guest is going to say some things about it that was really helpful to me, and I hope to you as well. But anyway, Second Peter 3, verse 3. I'll just read this with you real quickly. 
Second Peter 3, verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers or scoffers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You know, this whole notion of a second coming of Christ during which time sinners will be judged. <laughs> somebody don't go for it. They mock it in somebody. They scoff. They say, hey, they say, look, you Christians, you naysayers, you, you end of the world people. Um, where is this Jesus of yours? I mean, you keep talking to me about his return. Where is he? Is he here? Is he there? I don't see him. Do you see him? Is he, did I miss him? Where, I mean, it's just mockery for crying out. I mean, this and everything's going on. Day turns to night. Night turns to today you know what i mean life is just going on where is this what are you talking about judgment where is this where is this jesus then verse five second peter three verse five for when they maintain this it escapes their notice that by the word of god the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water Folks, that again is a reference to what we just read in Genesis 7. And now Peter is referring to it as if it's a historically verifiable event. It's not fiction. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It actually happened. And here Peter is saying, God's delay are not a reflection of his slowness or poor planning. It's a reflection of his mercy. The very folks who are mocking him because they do not see him yet are ones he is mercifully giving Another week, two, so as to repent. You know, the next time you get offended for being a Christian or just for being a human, don't take it so seriously. Look what God endures. You kidding me? The very people he's giving a chance to, he came and suffered and died for. And the very ones with regard to, he's withholding his wrath, are the ones who are mocking him for withholding his wrath. Where is this judgment? Where is it? Then it says, verse 7, but by his word, the present, present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Not a flood water, but fire. What does that mean? I don't have any idea. Specifically, I don't know what fire indicates. Um, I think you'll get a little bit of a glimpse of it uh, in a moment when I introduce to you uh, someone who's going to share some really cool things with no, I don't know if they're cool. Interesting things with us in just in just a second. For now, I want you to remember this. Um, the first invitation in the entire Bible is found in this chapel. Noah, I invite you into the ark. That's the first invitation. There are many more to come. The ultimate one is, people, I invite you to accept my son. Jesus is the ark. As the ark was the place of deliverance and salvation, it's Jesus today. We're invited to come into personal relationship with him and therefore be protected uh, from the righteous indignation and wrath of Almighty God. Folks, to enter the ark was for Noah and his family the place of safety and security. To enter into a personal relationship with Jesus is the place of safety and salvation. Jesus is the ark. To be found in him is to be found in the place of safety and salvation. The ark was not Noah's doing. It was God's idea so too the plan of salvation in Jesus is God's idea. I didn't come up with it. You didn't come up with it. God provided the ark. Jesus is the ark. And the ark was for Noah and his family the only place of escape 
from judgment. Jesus is the only way. There is salvation in no other name that has been given from heaven amongst men, by which we must be saved. The ark saved Noah and his family from judgment for one reason. They believed in God's word. And that's what saves us today. God said, you have all sinned. I will provide a place of safety and salvation for you. Will you take me at my word? Noah and his family did. Nothing has changed. The means by which we're in right relationship with God is the same today. God says, you have all sinned. I have provided for you, my son. Will you take him as your own? And if we say yes, our sinfulness notwithstanding, it's cast behind God's back. He doesn't save us on the basis of our resolutions, commitments, devotion, and all the rest. He saves us on the basis of us trusting in his provision. It was the ark only as a foreshadowing of the ultimate means and place of salvation. That's a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I surely hope you have heeded God's invitation and said, Oh God, I accept the means of your salvation. Come into me, Lord Jesus, and put me into you now and forevermore, you being the place of salvation. Grant me immunity from the righteous judgment of God, you being judged in my place. What's the answer? Yes, Lord. No, Lord. No is not a good answer. There's no reason for it. Don't do that. I hope you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. Now, we have a very special church because it's made up of very special people, and I want you to meet one. This is Dale Clements, and he's been a long-term member of this church and a wonderful Bible teacher and a great family. Now, Dale is a, an airborne ranger, and they don't grow on trees, so don't mess with him. And uh, from that perspective and his perspective just as a thinking Christian, he has some very interesting things to share with us now. So please give your attention to Dale Clements. I just want to say thank you to, bro- for, to Brother Stewart for allowing me to, to talk with you just a minute about something that I got to see. I'd like to give you a little bit of background first, if I could. Think about where we got the popular idea that the earth is ancient. Well, that idea came from a philosophy known as uniformitarianism. Now, that's a long word, but let me give you what it means. Uniformitarianism is the principle that has successfully promoted the idea of an ancient earth. Uniformitarianism is the belief that the origin and development of all things can be explained exclusively in terms of the same natural laws and processes operating today. Now, this concept was introduced by one James Hutton, was popularized by Sir Charles Lyell, and greatly influenced the thoughts and the works of Charles Darwin. Uniformitarianism has been the backbone of modern historical geology and is responsible for the current widespread assumption that the earth is anywhere from four to six billion years old. The basic philosophy of uniformitarianism is that the present is the key to the past. In other words... All the processes in nature have been happening at the same rate and, and have been happening uniformly all through the eons of time. 
That's where they can come up with ideas like the Grand, Can- the, the Grand Canyon was cut by the Colorado River over eons and eons of time. And that idea is prevalent. I've got a 2014 calendar, landscape calendar, that's got a picture of the Grand Canyon, and it says on the caption, the Grand Canyon took three to six million years to form by the carving action of the Colorado River. So this idea is prevalent. God allowed me to see something up close that flies in the face of all that. But before I tell you about it, I want to cite again one of the passages of Scripture that Brother Stewart mentioned. Second Peter. I want to read it again. Knowing this first, that scoffers would come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his, that is Jesus, coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now catch that phrase. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Notice what these scoffers are promoting. That's uniformitarianism. That's uniformitarian philosophy right there. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that, that then existed perished being flooded with water. Peter said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that in the last days they would forget about the global flood. The vast majority of geologists today reject catastrophism and embrace uniformitarianism, fulfilling prophecy just like Peter said. Now, Psalm 104, verse 32 says, God looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. On May 18, 1980, at 8.32 a.m., what has been called the most significant geological event of the 20th century occurred, the eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. I got to see the aftermath of the eruption because I was in the Army at the time, stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington. I will never forget it. Sixty people were killed, refusing to heed warnings to evacuate the area. What was learned from a geologic standpoint was that it does not take eons of time for significant topographical change to happen to the earth. When the volcano erupted, the 1,300 feet of summit elevation blew off instantly. Super hot liquid water flashed to steam, kind of like shaking a pop bottle. In that initial steam blast, individual rocks as big as houses, some the size of a city block, were hurled ballistically away from the mountain. Geologists said that the initial explosion was equivalent to 20 million tons of TNT blast energy. Now, at the base of Mount St. Helens, on the, uh, at the base of the North Slope, is a beautiful lake. Spirit Lake. It's a large lake. It's four square miles in area. When the mountain erupted, it didn't blow out right at the peak. It blew out more from the side, and it pushed part of the mountain down into the Spirit Lake Basin. And when it pushed that much real estate, that much land, down into the lake basin, it pushed the lake out of the basin. And when the water came back, like flowing back into a saucer, the bottom of the lake 
was higher than what the surface of the water was prior to the eruption. That much earth was shifted into it just in that amount of time. Well, I got to fly over the site. I was in an airborne unit and got to fly often. From the air, it looked like the area had been bombed. I have never seen anything like it. There were so many evergreen trees on the surface of Spirit Lake that you could not see the water. It looked as though someone had turned over a huge box of kitchen matches. Um, on the first day of the eruption, it lasted for a total of nine hours, erupting violently for that entire nine-hour period. Combined blasts were equal to 400 million tons of TNT blast energy. That's equivalent to 20,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs or one atomic bomb a second for nine hours. 150 square miles of forest were leveled in six minutes. Millions of mature evergreen trees were leveled and toasted instantly by pumice flow. Pumice flow deposits 25 to 30 feet tall, not there one day, literally were there the next day with layered strata being formed not in eons of time, but in hours. In the weeks that, and months that followed, geologists exploring the area came upon a canyon that did not show up on their maps. A new canyon had been cut 100 feet deep through solid rock by the abrasive nature of the pumice flow. A canyon that did not show up on their maps. A canyon that was not there prior to the eruption. It does not take eons of time for canyons to be cut or for layered strata to form. Under catastrophic conditions, it happens very quickly. Now, this was just one small average volcano. What kind of layered strata and geologic formation and buried fossils would be formed if the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were open? Folks, we're living on a planet that is scarred by a worldwide flood. There just is no excuse for unbelief. A, a thought occurred to me, Brother Stewart. The writer of Hebrews in, ch in chapter 11, verse 6, without, says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. But it seems to me that he requires so little because he gives us so many things to observe. There is not one bit of evidence used to advance evolution that is not better explained in terms of a global flood. Thank you for letting me share my experience. Thank you, brother. Man, I'll tell you. I, I, that was great, wasn't it? For crying out loud. And, uh, I'm glad Dale shared that with us, and you know the whole point. If one volcano <laughs> did all that, a, can a canyon that didn't turn up uh, suddenly appearing, think about the uh, awesome power of an omnipotent, most high God and what it will be like when it is unleashed upon, upon the earth. Do we say that to scare people? Absolutely. Yeah, out of indifference and apathy out of the notion that today is all we have and uh, you just die and that ends it. That's not true. We all face eternity w one way or the other. And I love what Dale had to say.
we are without excuse in that whole notion of God enabling our faith by giving us uh, evidences like the likes of which Dale just shared with us. My, my goodness. Uh, there's no excuse for for rejecting God's marvelous invitation to know the Lord Jesus, uh, be adopted into his family, be an heir of salvation, and to uh, have immunity from the wrath of God in having fully uh, been poured out on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus. I hope you leave this place as a Christ one. That's the best kind of person to be, someone in Christ by faith. Lord Jesus, thank you for... Um, being so patient with us, the flood story is given for us to recognize even today. There stands behind the scenes an almighty God, unlimited in power, omnipotent and seated on the throne with whom we have to make do. And what a privilege to be able to call you father and daddy, to know you comfortably and personally. What a privilege that by Love, uh, fear is your love for us. Fear is cast out. And oh God, we pray in our time, maybe short here on earth, we would be considered righteous ones, as was Noah. Uh, stand apart from the crowd with an interest in uh, affecting the crowd with truths about you. Make us all to be uh, preachers of righteousness uh, in normal conversation and in the normal course of our daily life so that others may find their way to the ark. You, Lord Jesus, are the ark in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. We look forward to seeing you next time, unless the Lord returns before next week. Think about it. It's a possibility.